This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Coming to you tonight from Earl Warren College at the University of California, San Diego. I'm Linda Schacht, and this is State of Minds. Warren is one of six undergraduate colleges here at UCSD, a campus built on a mesa overlooking the Pacific Ocean in northern San Diego. UCSD is one of ten campuses of the world-renowned University of California, where every day faculty, staff, and students pursue knowledge in the public interest, making California a state of minds. We offer a mix of science and the arts, much like a typical curriculum at the University of California. We'll start with a report on UC San Diego's latest contribution to homeland security. From there to Sacramento, where doctors from UC Davis are reaching patients down the line, and then we'll see how Berkeley scientists are using technology to understand the northern lights. In between these reports, We'll show you some of the artistic life on this campus. But first, Doug Ramsey from UCSD's Jacobs School of Engineering. Crossing the Rio Grande River at Eagle Pass, Texas, the Camino Real International Bridge is emerging as a critical commercial thoroughfare between the U.S. and Mexico and a potential target for border crime. Now a team of nearly a dozen UC San Diego researchers have successfully deployed a prototype high-tech video surveillance system, the first of its kind to be put into everyday use, to help police in the tiny town of Eagle Pass keep an eye on and around the busy toll bridge. Eagle Pass has been highlighted for many years as a major crossing point for uh, illegal trafficking of narcotics and human traffic, and, and uh, we want to make uh, this particular area of, of, uh, of Texas a safe haven for our citizens. Dubbed Project Eagle Eyes, the prototype surveillance system also serves as a real-world testbed for a larger research effort at UCSD, where electrical engineering professor Mohan Trivedi and his research team are developing advanced distributed interactive video arrays, DIVAs, for safety and security and cameras are only part of the story. Then we are really, really talking about things which are full-fledged systems, where camera is a part of it, computers is another part of it, communication, how do you take things to cooperate between themselves or cooperate with an operator which is half a mile away or half a world apart. How do you do that? Those are also very important links in there. And then how much of a involvement of a human operator is required to look at all these cameras is also a research issue. Trivedi has been working on homeland security projects for five years and his computer vision and robotics research lab at UCSD, affiliated with the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, was among the first to adapt machine vision technologies for counterterrorism surveillance with funding from the Federal Interagency Technical Support Working Group TISWIG for short. After the uh, 9-1-1 tragedy, uh, TISWIG uh, was given a lot of uh, Department of Defense money to uh, try to look at some innovative technologies from the non-big DOD um, um, type applications. And we 
published a broad agency announcement and received thousands of uh, good ideas. More than 12,500 applications were submitted in response to that first call for proposals. Only 47 were funded in that first round, and the UC San Diego project was one of only eight in the area of surveillance technology. UCSD's expertise later caught the attention of Chris Aldridge, director of a National Institute of Justice program called the Border Research and Technology Center, based in San Diego. Aldridge was looking for solutions to Eagle Pass's bridge surveillance challenge. Well, the problem that Eagle Pass identified was the need to uh, obtain some type of um, um, a picture of what was going on underneath the bridges that went across the Rio Grande River. Uh, so there had to be an innovative solution identified and applied, and that uh, again led us to uh, Dr. Trivetti's work and his project in using 360 degrees uh, video surveillance in the context of some other camera configurations to give them that sort of public safety picture that they really needed. That 360 degree technology is one of the critical components integrated into the Eagle Eye system which includes three cameras distributed underneath the Camino Real Bridge. On the riverside near Mexico, near-infrared, high-resolution, 24-7 surveillance of dimly lit regions, even in the pitch darkness of night. 400 feet away, an omnidirectional 360-degree camera provides a panoramic view of the entire bridge, nearby roads and riverbanks, and another pan-tilt-zoom camera can be instructed automatically to get a clearer close-up picture. And the idea there is that it is like human beings, that the panoramic vision is providing us what one may say uh, uh, overall perspective of the situation or in some sense uh, peripheral vision. Eagle Eyes runs with Trevetti's custom software, which helps capture, analyze, encrypt, transmit, and display video. All three cameras stream video simultaneously to a control room in the nearby Eagle Pass Customs building via both secure wireless connections and wired landlines. Police interact with the video through an intuitive map-based user interface. They can control the cameras and use a joystick to focus on the objects of interest. If I'm seeing some activity under the bridge, I can zoom in on some license plates on the car, or I can zoom in on a person's face and I can get a still image of it. That's going to let us know of activity that's happening on the bridge, whereas we don't have to send anybody just to patrol or depend on somebody to call us. We can see it in time. Because these are distributed cameras, like human binocular eyes are distributed, the advantage is that if we can get them calibrated and uh, triangulated properly, then we can actually realize the depth perspective also. Now that the UCSD team has deployed the first generation of Eagle Eyes, they are busy in their California lab working on next steps, including automatic 24-7 situational awareness of a scene. We want the machine to be able to learn what events that are going on in the scene are the abnormal and dangerous events and try to identify those events. And this is the sort of research that's moving forward from the Eagle Eyes project. Last summer, the UCSD team tested a downsized version of Eagle Eyes on the campus itself for a disaster preparedness exercise, and the researchers are working on spin-off technologies to help first responders in the wake of an emergency or natural disaster. This is Doug Ramsey in San Diego. UC San Diego is among the top engineering and science schools in the country, but equally vibrant here is a commitment to art. For that, we turn to Mary Beebe, who's the director of UCSD's Stewart Collection. The Stewart Collection is uh, currently 16 works of art. They're pretty major installations, 
some of which you would recognize as sculpture and some of which you might not. By spreading them around, they become kind of landmarks. To go through the whole collection is a really nice way to see the whole campus. Students walking through this courtyard see this big fella. He's called the Bear by artist Tim Hawkinson. Frieder Seiwell, the Dean of Engineering, said that the Bear was an important monument not just to art but to engineering because you had to have a very creative idea at the beginning and then figure out how to make it happen. The torso stone weighs 217,000 pounds and the rocks you can't, they're too big to move around so just for Tim to be able to figure out how he wanted the rocks to fit together exactly we had to have them all scanned and then exact miniatures made so that he could then figure out exactly how he wanted them to fit together but we had two 300 ton cranes in there at one point and this huge rock coming in and it was, it was, it was a real undertaking. Beebe continues to work with artists on ideas for new installations here. Among them, this one from artist Doho Su. This is a house that has been picked up by some force of nature, whether a tornado or whatever, but and been flown from some other part of the country because this is not, he doesn't want it to look like a California house. You can enter from the inside the building and inside it's a small little student lounge, a comfy place to sit and read or have coffee or whatever because he feels that there are all these students here who've come some for the first time away from their homes to a vast institution that has nothing even resembling a home <laughs> so we're very excited about this proposal you can imagine it's going to be complicated to pull off <laughs> We're now in what locals here call a UCSD secret spot. It's the Grove Cafe in the old student center. It's a quiet little nook surrounded by these great eucalyptus trees and it's usually chock full of artists in the making. That's because it's right outside the UCSD Craft Center, a place that offers students all kinds of classes, including ceramics, jewelry making, painting, and the most popular of all, glass blowing. Next up tonight is a story about saving lives by using video to connect rural doctors with specialists at the UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento. It's called telemedicine, as we hear now from Paul Fotenauer. Hi, Rob. My name's Cassandra. I'll be your nurse this afternoon. Awesome. Cassandra Kilmer has been a nurse at this small rural hospital in Willits, California okay, for five years. And in that time, she has seen her share of friends and neighbors who have faced challenging health issues. But never did she expect to face death so suddenly, not once, but nearly twice. Last year, her husband of 18 years died from cancer, and the tragedy struck again. On a windy cold day in December, her 10-year-old son, Ian, unexpectedly fell off the living room sofa in their mountaintop house. Her older son, Travis, carried Ian to the car, and the three of them drove to the Frank R. Howard Memorial Hospital, 20 miles away. I was definitely scared when he was, we tried to um, get him to respond to us, and he wouldn't. He just stared at us. He wouldn't say anything. He couldn't move on his own. As they sped down the mountain, Cassandra's mind was racing through possibilities of what could be wrong with her son. Most definitely the longest trip that I've ever made, and you know, there were just so many possibilities going through my mind as to what it could be, none of them good, and 
just hopeful that, you know, it wasn't too busy there and that, you know, the best doctors were going to be on duty and things would go quickly. When Cassandra arrived here at the Willits Hospital Emergency Center, her son Ian was unresponsive. The emergency room doctors immediately went to work to try to save this boy's life. The vein is, is lateral to the artery, right? Dr. Ace Barish, an internal medicine specialist, was pulling double duty that day by working the ER. He was uh, comatose. He was, uh, he was uh, hyperventilating, breathing very hard. He was deathly pale. He was not responsive to anything, and uh, one glance told me that there was a good chance this young man was going to die. Barish immediately set up a strategy to figure out what was happening. In the meantime, the doctor was also dealing with another critical emergency case in the adjacent bed. He was beginning to feel overwhelmed. It took about uh, 20 minutes before I decided that he was in a diabetic coma. At first, uh, it looked very much like uh, meningitis, like meningococcal meningitis. And when I first laid eyes on him, I have had cases like that before that go downhill very quickly with kids, and they do die. Dr. Angus Matheson, the Kilmer family doctor, just happened to be in the hospital and was quickly pressed into service. The two docs knew time was running out. They needed expert advice fast, and they needed it 107 miles away at the University of California Davis Medical Center. Barish and Matheson quickly dialed up their portable terminal that connected to the pediatric critical care unit in Sacramento. At the other end of that call were two of the best pediatric intensive care specialists in California, Karush Parsipur and Jim Marzin. Within seconds after the video and audio link was established, the four doctors worked together to save Ian's life. Dr. Marson, I have a 10-year-old here whose uh, IV has infiltrated. As you know, he has uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. And uh, I have a call into Dr. Dawson, who will be here in about 10 minutes, and he can put in a cut down. All right. Well, I think with his mental status, we should really move forward to either a central line or an I.O. We don't really have 10 minutes. Uh, Dr. Barish, when you were talking to the doctors at the medical center, you told them that you had contacted a, an emergency doctor, a surgeon, who was coming to help you with uh, Ian. But they told you you didn't have 10 minutes. How did you feel at that point? That was very frightening because I realized he was right. I knew he was right. I wanted to get a line in. I was just uh, telling myself that Dr. Dawson, the surgeon, would be here. He could be here in 10 minutes, and, and, and that would be enough. And they, they reinforced what I already knew, which is what he, he needed a line. What I'm generally putting in with adults is what's called a subclavian catheter, which goes up under the clavicle. The, the danger of that is that you can hit the lung. And when he's already fighting for his life, that, that, would, you know, that would be much worse than not giving him the fluids. Those who go into a diabetic coma are dehydrated and need fluids. Veins that are normally used for IVs collapse and become impenetrable. So Dr. Barish needed to access the femoral vein near the groin. I think maybe, can we put in a femoral line then with him? Well, I could try. I haven't done it in about 20 years. I can talk you through it. If you've done a subclavian, it's just a couple pointers and we can go ahead and get that in. But we really should do this as soon as possible. Okay, I have the artery and, I, and, I think, and I'm just medial to the artery. And we're touching the IV. Very good. And it seems to be working fine. Great. Perfect job. Good shot. A sigh of relief came as Ian began to get life-saving fluid. After his vital signs were restored, he was immediately transferred to the pediatric intensive care unit at the UC Davis Hospital by ground ambulance since the bad weather grounded helicopter transport. 
Once at the hospital, his insulin levels were regulated. Ian had just suffered a diabetic coma. He had no symptoms and no previous diabetic condition. We were quite concerned with Ian's condition because he had diabetic ketoacidosis or the diabetes out of control. And there's a certain population of those children that are at risk of getting brain swelling. And from this brain swelling, nearly a third of the patients die. Marzen says that people who live in rural communities don't have the same access to specialists as those living in large metropolitan areas. Telemedicine gets rid of this distance barrier for them, and so they have access to the specialists that they need, and the goal is to raise the health care markers for the people living in rural communities. Dr. Tom Nesbitt, who founded telemedicine in 1992, has focused much of his work on tackling geographic disparities in rural health. He says telemedicine is used every day, largely because there is a shortage of rural doctors. One of the reasons that physicians leave rural areas is that they feel um, not supported and vulnerable. And so if we can provide them specialty consultation, um, we can provide them with ed continuing uh, medical education, that supports those doctors staying in communities. Voters last November approved State Proposition 1D, which will provide $200 million to the University of California to expand medical education using new technologies. Last fall, Governor Schwarzenegger attended a UC Davis pediatric telehealth conference where he announced the signing of an executive order to improve broadband connectivity in the state. Nesbitt says that visit was pivotal. I think what it shows is not only that telemedicine has really become accepted, but it also shows that the state, um, through the governor, has a vision of a digital highway that includes health care and that that health care is no longer limited by your geographic location. That hopefully, eventually, anybody anywhere in this state will have access to the best quality medical experts. Who's this one? Brownie. Brownie. And who's this one? Is this one Chance? Yeah. See, I remembered their names. Dr. Karush Pasipur, who assisted Dr. Marzin with Ian, says using this technology saves time for both the patient and the doctor. Trying to diagnose or help a physician using these, this telemedicine technology, it actually is quite a big help for us. Sometimes that's all you need to figure out exactly what's going on. Just by seeing the patient, you can you know, really figure out exactly what needs to be done. Telemedicine will soon transform the way medicine is practiced today. It will be available in more clinics and hospitals, allowing more specialists to advise doctors throughout California. For example, paramedics and ambulances will use portable television monitors so they can communicate directly with emergency room doctors. The possibilities, experts say, are endless. Why? Why? On that cold winter day in Willits, Cassandra Kilmer's life changed forever. We've definitely learned over the last couple of years that life is precious and you never know when it's going to end and we have to enjoy the time that we have together and make the most of it. We'll be fine. Paul Fotenauer reporting in Davis. The sun god that you see here was the very first piece commissioned by the Stewart Collection. The artist, Nikki de Saint-Fall, was inspired by the colors and light of the southwest United States. She wanted to build something bright,
playful and just a little bit scary for this part of the campus. At this point, the sun god is one of UCSD's most popular icons. We go now to UC Berkeley, where the colors and light of the night sky have drawn scientists to explore auroras. More now from Roxanne McCajden. The magnificent moves of the aurora, or northern lights, they can be seen over the far northern regions of the world and at the South Pole. And sometimes, the beautiful sheets of color move about the sky in wavy patterns or bursts of brightness. But besides sparking the awe and fascination of people lucky enough to see them, the celestial dances of the auroras have provoked a decades-long debate among scientists. Exactly how and where are they being triggered? The question has confounded space scientists for more than 30 years. The sun is continuously shooting off electrically charged gas called solar wind, which blows forcefully across the Earth. Some of the charged particles get caught in the magnetic field that surrounds the Earth, the magnetosphere, stretching it out like rubber bands and showing up as an aurora. Very strong solar winds cause space storms and stress the bands of the magnetosphere, triggering a sudden release of energy called a substorm, stirring the aurora into motion. Okay, you can see a bit of aurora through, through the clouds at one of the sites. UC Berkeley Space Sciences Laboratory is leading a NASA mission to finally understand how and where auroral substorms happen. This choice of uh, putting together a mission that will study this uh, very focused goal um, was uh, a combination of the field reaching that uh, level of technical uh, expertise and a, a nagging question that the field had to resolve. Vasilis Angelopoulos is the principal investigator of the mission, which is called Themis, after the Greek goddess of justice. Justice in this case being the final ruling on where auroral substorms are triggered. Aside from greatly broadening our understanding of space, the new knowledge will also help scientists protect astronauts and spacecraft from getting hurt in violent space weather. It is a fantastic opportunity for Berkeley, but it also is a tremendous responsibility. So it has been exhilarating, but also excruciating, um, but great fun. As a collaboration among NASA, Berkeley, UCLA, and space science agencies and universities in Canada, France, Germany, and Austria, Themis is a new kind of space mission in many ways. It's a constellation mission, meaning several satellites will be launched together in one rocket and then released into separate but specifically designed orbits. The Themis satellites are designed to um, be placed strategically along the Sun-Earth line and track the flow of energy from one to the other, very much like meteorologists use buoys out in the ocean to trudge to track large ocean waves as they move from one buoy to the other in order to understand the flow of atmospheric energy. Berkeley built the instruments for the five satellites at the same time, also a first, and will be controlling the route and choreography of the spacecraft throughout the mission. Everybody says, we can't, you can't get five spacecraft done in that span of time, and we did it anyway. You know, we weren't making hot rods. We were making, you know, your, you were, we were making Tauruses, we were making Volkswagens. Um, we knew what we needed, what they needed to be able to do, and, and so we built that in early, and we built it so that they were easy to manufacture, easy to put together, um, and easy to test. Well, Themis has been challenging 
because we have five spacecraft to build, it's important that they all measure basically the same magnetic fields and electric fields and particles. At a cost of $180 million over three years, it was a real achievement that the Themis project came in on time and on budget. NASA's Dave Seibeck says the investment on Themis has been well worth it. This is absolutely the greatest thing that's happened. We're going to have all the information we need to address the questions that have been raised over the past 30 years. One of the key ways the Themis satellites will answer the substorm question is through their long antennas, which detect electrical and magnetic fields during substorms. And this is what's known as an axial boom. One shoots out the top, one shoots out the bottom. This thing deploys in about half a second. To complement the satellites, scientists at the University of Calgary installed and operate 16 observatories in Canada. The stations are equipped with fisheye cameras and computers built by Berkeley that photograph and record information about the auroras passing over them. Berkeley runs several more stations in Alaska. The dome protects the, the lens and the camera from the elements, and they have temperature control so that these uh, little boxes can survive and take the data down and transmit some of the data back to us uh, more or less in real time. Themis also has a strong public education component directed by Berkeley's Center for Science Education. UCLA installed magnetometers on 13 remote rural school campuses in 10 states where the instruments can register changes in the Earth's magnetosphere free from interference from traffic. The Themis mission will be complete in two years, but if all goes well, the scientists here expect to redirect the satellites to explore other unanswered questions about space. At Berkeley's Space Science Laboratory, this is Roxanne Makashchian. here is known as the Theater District, home to the La Jolla Playhouse, which you see behind me. Here, students and faculty from UCSD's Department of Theater and Dance work with the Playhouse on original productions, which in several cases have gone on to great success on Broadway. The Who's, Tommy, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and most recently, Jersey Boys. story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, which went on to win four Tony Awards in 2006, including Best Musical. To mark the close of this edition of State of Minds, we've come here to the Great Hall in International House. It's in the Eleanor Roosevelt College. Students from more than 30 countries live here together with their American counterparts. It's a community that's been specifically designed to foster cooperation, respect, and friendship among all peoples of the world. And that's a noble goal for a public university. That's our show for tonight. Please join us again in the spring when we'll check in on the newest campus of the University of California, UC Merced. Until then, I'm Linda Schacht in San Diego. We'll see you again soon. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.